So we're in chapter 8 of our study in the Gospel according to Mark. If you uh, want to have close by the maps that are on page 7 and page 5 of your note packet, if, if you're not interested in geography, don't worry about it, but uh, just to have those, a good idea where Jesus is. Chapter 8 begins, and I read again from the ESV translation, but I think almost all translations have this, in those days. Now, that is a, a fairly common way in which Mark is wanting us to continue what had happened in the previous section, where, if you remember, Jesus is in the region of the Decapolis. We saw that in verse 31 of chapter 7. So, this is Mark's way of saying, we're still at the same time, we're still in the same place. And if you look on page 7 of your note packet, uh, you see where Decapolis is. It's on the east side of the Jordan River, and uh, I've said this before, but I'll remind you this is very important. Uh, the Decapolis region is not a Jewish region. There would have been a, some Jews there, but for the most part, this is Gentile, heavily Gentile populated area. And so, uh, for the most part, these people would not be familiar with the day-to-day -day rituals or the worship rituals or the sacrificing rituals or anything dealing with the ceremonial law of the Jews. Now, it doesn't mean they didn't know Jews, but that was not part of their worldview. And finally, the Decapolis, and you see that from the name, it's, it's a Greek word. Uh, this was a, a region of 10 major cities. Deca means 10 and polis is city. 10 cities that are on the east side of the Jordan and, and Dead, uh, Dead Sea and, and, and Sea of Galilee that were established by Rome. Uh, Pompey had done that in, in, the, in the AD 30s. And so this is a heavily, heavily fortified area. It's very important to Rome. It's sort of a buffer between the Parthian Empire to the east and the Roman Empire to the west. So I'm saying all that because this is important information for understanding what goes on here. So anyway, in those days when again a great crowd was gathered. Now, that that's very similar to what we read in the previous section in the feeding of the 5,000. So this is setting us up for the feeding of the 4,000. Again, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat. He called his disciples to him, that he is Jesus, and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. Again, almost, almost identical language to the previous section when we studied the feeding of the 5,000. What is motivating Jesus Christ? Compassion. And these people, as you'll find out at the end of the paragraph, the number is 4,000 individuals, just men, not counting women or children. Jesus has compassion on them. And it's very interesting to do a word study of compassion, because when you do that, you see that's an inner motivation of empathy, of, of, of feeling with these people, the hunger, and presumably the, the, just the, the difficulty of not having adequate food supply. They're in a desolate area on the east side of the Jordan River. And they had been with him for three days. Now, that does not necessarily mean that those entire three days they weren't eating anything. But because they were with him for three days, food supplies are running low. And this is what motivates Jesus to have compassion. 
But it is fascinating what he does. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, I've said this before in our study. Quite often, the miracles of Jesus, his messianic miracles, are not only to prove who he is, the Messiah of Israel, but also a didactic purpose, to teach his disciples. And here again, you see this question that's virtually identical to the question he asked them in the feeding of the 5,000. Now remember, they had seen Jesus do that extraordinary miracle of feeding 5,000 men plus their, their wives and their children. And so they're asking Jesus virtually the same question. So you, you, you start to question in your own mind. You, you begin to posit in your own mind, well, didn't they learn anything? Are, are they not understanding who Jesus is by now? If he fed the 5,000, he could feed these people too. But remember, this is to teach the disciples as well as to prove to the crowds who he is. And he said to them, I'm in verse 5 now, how many loaves do you have? They said seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground, and he took the seven loaves, having given thanks, he broke them, gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. Having blessed them, he said that there also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied. Um, the seven, the few soft fish would be dried fish, perhaps salted fish, preserved from bacteria getting into the fish and so on. So again, it's, it's almost identical to the feeding of the 5,000, except the number is different. But you see the same result. They ate and they were satisfied. And they took up the they would be the disciples, they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Now, the term basket there is different than the term back in, in chapter 6, where you have the uh, record of the feeding of the 5,000. It's a different type of basket. This would be a basket that's made of rope. Uh, and that's just the, the, the meaning of that Greek word that's used here. And uh, so that, again, indicates something different in the Greek region, the Decapolis, than it was in the Jewish region. And there were about 4,000 people. And he sent them away, and immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Damautha, uh, which is it's a transliteration from the, from the, the language, uh, the Aramaic language. What, is, what he's doing is he's going from the Decapolis, to the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. We'll see that when we get to the next paragraph. So if you look on your, you can look on the map on page five, or you can look in the map on page seven, Jesus is going from the very eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee up to the northeastern shore. So they'll be hugging the coast, ending up at the northeastern uh, corner. You'll see where they're going to land near Bethsaida. So, again, if you're not interested in the geography and I've lost you, don't worry about it. But I just want you to have a sense that we know exactly where Jesus is here. We know what he's doing. We know where he's going. 
All right, so the feeding of the 4,000 in terms of the narrative is virtually identical to the feeding of the 5,000. The only difference is the number and the different word for basket. Other than that, it's identical. What does this show? Christ's sufficiency, Christ's miraculous power, Christ's messianic authority is the same with the Jews, the feeding of the 5,000, as it is with the Gentiles, the feeding of the 4,000. And that is, that is really important to remember that. These two miraculous feedings of these large groups of people are done in two different regions. Jews, feeding of the 5,000, Gentiles, feeding of the 4,000. Christ's efficiency is equal for both groups because Jesus came to save and rescue both Jew and Gentile. And so when you read this, as we are reading it now 2,000 years later, we keep that in mind. What is going on? And, it, and finally, as I've said several times, I said it just a few minutes ago, these miracles are also didactic to teach truth to his disciples. And they were to conclude, I'm not sure they did it right away, but later on, as all this comes together for them, they would, that Christ's sufficiency is equal for both Jew and Gentile. So it's, it's an ex another extraordinary miracle, what would have been an unbelievable miracle to witness. But it shows again the sufficiency of Jesus for both Jew and Gentile. All right, I, I don't see there are any questions, but in case there are questions. I do have a question, Dr. Eckman. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> um, the compassion that Jesus showed, is it, is it, I don't know how to describe this, is it just a pure compassion for people, or in some way was it responsive to the sacrifice that these 5,000 to 4,000 people made by following him for three days? I don't know, I'm, I guess I'm asking, is it pure, or is there some kind of quid pro quo or something there? <laughs> but Jim, in, in a way, it's probably both. I mean, uh, if you go to Matthew chapter 10, Jesus uh, calls the 12 disciples, uh, commissions them, sends them out, and the text says, and he had compassion on the multitude. And he said, the workers are few, but, but the harvest is enormous. And so, Jim, there's just a general compassion that Jesus Christ shows for all people in all situations. But you are then correct in this specific context. His compassion also is focused on these people. I mean, in a very real sense, they did. These people had sacrificed. Uh, for three days. I mean, to be with Jesus in this relatively barren region on the east side of the Jordan River and Sea uh, uh, Galilee and so on, this is an area lush with lots of agricultural products. It isn't. So they're paying a, a price. There's a cost for following Jesus as they have for these three days and listening to him teaching and doing miracles, etc. So I think that is the immediate cause of his compassion in this context. But there's just a general compassion that Jesus has toward all people because of their condition. So I don't know if I answered your question or not. Yeah, you did. So, I mean, would I be correct in saying it's sort of like they benefited from his common grace? Yeah. 
Yes. In addition yes. to God being particularly responsive to their specific needs. Yes. 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 That's very good. All right. Thank you. Any other questions ever with me? Now, look at verse 10 as we continue in chapter 8. And it's, it's important to keep in mind that what the Gospels are doing, and Mark is no exception, the Gospels are trying to give us an account of how people are responding to Jesus, but also to give an account of why the spiritual leadership is rejecting Jesus. And that spiritual leadership in rejecting Jesus is ultimately what will lead to, to his crucifixion, which, of course, is at the end of this book. So here we see another important ratcheting up of the Pharisees' hostility toward Jesus. Look at verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him. Now, that little, just little geographical reference came. Where are they coming from? They're coming from Jerusalem. And they're going up into Galilee. And they began to argue with him. That, that word, that Greek word, could be translated dispute with him, could be translated debate with him. And this was the core of what the dispute, the arguing, the debating was about. We want to see a sign from heaven. And Mark puts it this way, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, you read that in verse 11, and you say, wait a minute. <laughs> what Jesus has been doing now for about a year and a half, we're getting close to two years now, is doing nothing but giving signs. <laughs> he has been giving evidence after evidence after evidence of who he is. Because the Old Testament said, particularly the prophet Isaiah, you will know Messiah. He will give sight to the blind. He will give hearing to the deaf. The mute will speak. The sick will be healed. Those who are spiritually sick will be restored, and the dead will rise. What has Jesus been doing for nearly two years? Exactly what Isaiah said he would do. So here are the spiritual leaders saying, we want a sign from heaven to test him, to test him. That's their motive, to test him. But what do they mean a sign? You know, I don't know exactly. It, it isn't clear. There's nothing terribly unique about the word sign. But one would have to conclude some fantastic, incredible, marvelous sign. Maybe God speaking from heaven. But he had done that, hadn't he? At the baptism of Jesus, transfiguring of Jesus. But what they're asking for evidences a bankrupt spirituality. What they're asking for is clear-cut, unambiguous evidence of rejection. What they're asking for manifests an absolute lack of faith and trust in who Jesus is. They have their own agenda, and it doesn't matter what the evidence says. 
we will not believe in who he is. Now, I added a whole bunch of things to embellish this. So seeking from him a sign, it isn't, well, you know, that sounds like a reasonable thing for them to ask. No, it's not. It is evidence of their rejection and their hard heart of unbelief. So how is Jesus going to respond? Last week, last week yes. you explained how they had so many years of, the Jews had so many years of indoctrination and teaching of the law in, in the old, you know, in the, in the way they were brought up. And they really had right. trouble accepting Jesus. And the, and the Gentiles yeah. didn't have to deal with that. And they, and they were very receptive to Jesus. Is that correct? That, that contrast is, is very real. You're right. All right. Let's look at the Lord's response now. I love this. And he sighed deeply in his spirit. Now, remember, uh, we said this many times, Peter is the primary source for Mark when he wrote his gospel. So undoubtedly, Peter shared this with Mark. You should have seen Jesus when he responded. He let out a big sigh. You know what that means? He sighed deeply in his spirit. So we, we, we need to speculate a little bit. What is, why is he sighing? Well, it, when someone sighs, like you're in a conversation with your spouse or a friend or one of your children or grandchildren or whatever, and they, they do something or say something that, that is unsettling for you, or frustrating for you. <laughs> you know, it's kind of a in an audible but not verbal evidence of something's going on inside. And Mark says, in his spirit, he's sighing deeply at the astonishing unbelief of these men. It's almost like I can't believe it. That's why he says this. Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, that is a bit problematic because in Matthew's account of this conversation, Jesus says no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. And that means as Jonah was in the belly of that great fish for three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the belly of the earth three days and three nights and will rise again. In other words, saying that is the resurrection will be the final sign you will receive. But yeah. the reasons are not clear, Mark leaves that out. Mark does not add that to the words of Jesus, which Jesus did speak. Some, somebody had a question. Yeah, um, what, what is the, um, uh, the belly of the fish? What... Um, the sign other than the sign of Jonah, where he was three days in the in the earth, right? What is that meant to be? Uh, is that literal? Is that is it really geocentric? Um, okay, now I understood your question until you said. Is that geocentric? Well, I know. In other words, I'm going to. He's going to be three days in the belly of the earth. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so they grave in other words. 
So, so that refers to the grave. It doesn't grave. refer to specifically 6,000 feet below sea level. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I think it is just a metaphor for that uh, is, is pointing to the grave. Got it. I think that's all that means. And Mark, I think it's in Matthew chapter 12, I think, is the corresponding uh, chapter to this. And so when, when, when Jesus, if I come back now to Mark, uh, in the verse 12 and Mark 8, what Jesus is doing with that rhetorical question and then his statement that follows is a humiliating rebuke of these men. I mean, it, it, he is consciously and deliberately humiliating them with this public rebuke of them. And um, again, what Mark is doing, as really all the Gospels do this, but trying to show step by step by step, why do these spiritual leaders get to the point where they conclude this guy has got to go? This humiliation of us, this chastising of us in public, etc., it's got to end because our reputation and our standing in first century Judaism is being undermined. And so here, that's all Mark is doing. This is a typical docudrama approach in Mark's gospel. Quick, very, very focused, and that's all he's doing. He's not interested in elaborating more like Matthew does or Luke does. And so that's it. Their unbelief and hardness of heart is met by a public rebuke, humiliating rebuke of these men, because Jesus will continue to do more messianic signs. But he's saying to them, what you are asking for is not going to happen. Nothing is going to directly come from heaven other than me doing my messianic miracles. And as Matthew's account adds, it will be the resurrection. That will be the final sign of who I am. But that's, again, beyond what Mark is doing. I have another yeah. question. Would yeah, you, go ahead. Would, I'd like and, to spend too. I would think that Jesus would feel frustration as well as we do at times. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think that is part of why, as we, we looked at the beginning of verse 12, he sighs deeply. It's, it's frustration. It's, um, I, I would imagine, a bit of righteous indignation, you know, that these guys who are, if anyone should recognize who I am, it should be these guys. But instead of recognizing who he is and embracing him in faith, they're doing all of these things that are trying to publicly get Jesus to say something or to, to do something that's going to cause him to lose face with the people. As Mark says, to test him. It's an infinitive of purpose, to test him. Well, he turns the table on them and humiliates them, and, and he moves on. That's what verse 13, he moves on. <laughs> okay, Jim, somebody else had a question. Well, Jim, uh, yeah, this is Fred. Uh, the Pharisees' references were their political base more than the spiritual base, don't you think? Uh, what's, your, what's your comment on that as you see uh, the Pharisees' looking at this and seeing seeing maybe this this was eroding their influence on the people uh, because theirs was political and like you say isaiah uh, chapter 53 i think makes it clear 
that they just totally ignored that. But um, anyhow, and then Christ is looking at the spiritual heart of, of, of humanity rather than the political position on earth. Isn't it? I mean, what's your thoughts on those? Well, certainly, I mean, that is, that is always the case with Jesus and, and, and even the Lord's day. Uh, looking at what's in a person's heart is more important than, than anything else. But uh, the Pharisees are a complicated group uh, to understand in first century Judaism. The Sadducees, the two major groups, as you know, in the Sanhedrin were the Pharisees and Sadducees. The Sadducees were the majority party. They, they dominated. All of the high priests were chosen from, from the Sadducees. They were the wealthy. Uh, they had accommodated to Rome. They, they, were, they were willing to do what Rome wanted to do to preserve the peace and preserve their wealth and position. The Pharisees were not wealthy. Pharisees associated with the lower classes. They lived in the south, southern part of, of old Jerusalem, down near the Pool of Siloam. Um, they had no money. They were, they were very dependent on the beneficent of the beneficence of the people. Um, their loyalty was to the people. They were supreme patriots. They were the, they were the nationalists of the day. Um, they detested Rome. And their fear always was that if, if the people do not follow the law, and the people do not follow the teachings of the law, and follow all these political machinations of the Sadducees and the Herodians and so on, then Rome, Rome is going to come in and crush them again. And so their, their loyalty is to God, but their loyalty to his God as they see him through their legalistic pronouncements that, have, that would later be incorporated in what was called the Mishnah. They're very complicated to understand, but there is no doubt about it. What they see is Jesus does not represent the kind of Messiah we want. And because Jesus does not represent the kind of Messiah we want, therefore we're rejecting him. Their vision of Messiah is not based on what the Old Testament said, which is extraordinary, because if anybody knew it, they did. It was based on what they wanted Messiah to do. And so um, they, they also then, as they're being publicly humiliated by Jesus time after time after time in the, in the gospel accounts, the the fear they had is that the lower class elements of Jewish society will no longer be loyal to them. And so they're a minority party. They are the smallest of all the different groups that made up first century Judaism. But because they had prostituted the law, had perverted the law into a rigorous legalism, Jesus was hardest on them. And so it's, it's like if anybody should recognize who Jesus is, they should. But instead of embracing him, uh, they're rejecting him because he does not meet their expectations. Thank All you. right, let's, let's move very much. into, yeah, any other questions? Can okay, move on? Okay, so verse 14 is very much connected to the feeding of the 4,000 and what Jesus had just said to the Pharisees. Now remember, Jesus is now moving toward Bethsaida, to the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Now, when they had forgotten to bring bread, they would be the disciples, because they left the the Capolis region rather quickly, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat, 
he cautioned them, saying, okay, here's the context. In the boat, they're on the east shore of the Sea of Galilee, heading to the northeast, going to end up in Bethsaida. And they realize, we left so quickly, we don't have any bread. And so they're thinking of their bellies. Then Jesus takes that situation and says in verse 15, he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, you already knew the Pharisees are. Herod, uh, we've come across him earlier. This is really important. This is Herod Antipas, A-N-T-I-P-A-S. He is the he is the Tetrarch of Galilee. That's the, the title Rome gave him. He's the ruler of Galilee. He was Herod the Great's son. He will rule Galilee until, uh, I believe it's AD 39. So he's very influential, uh, but he is the one who ordered the execution of John the Baptist after that, that dancing scene of his wife's sister, uh, wife, daughter, and all that stuff, which we studied earlier. So when Jesus says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> and so this is remarkable, because obviously, when Jesus says the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod, he's not talking about bread. Now, I think you all know what leaven is. Leaven is like yeast. It is yeast, actually. But throughout the Old Testament, throughout the Old Testament, when the word leaven is used in a non-literal sense, it's always a metaphor for corruption and sin. So Jesus is taking a situation of the disciples. They had to leave the Decapolis region hastily. They only had one loaf of bread. They're making a fairly long trip along the coast. It's kind of hazardous. And they realize they don't have any food. And so Jesus takes that situation it's like a teachable moment. Okay, I'm going to take this teachable moment, and I'm going to tell my disciples, I'm going to warn my disciples, don't be drawn in by the sinful corruption of the Pharisees, and don't be drawn in to the sinful corruption of Herod Antipas. Neither one of them represents me represents my righteousness or represents my justice. They are the enemy. And in verse 16, the guys are still focusing on their bellies. They don't have the foggiest notion what Jesus is talking about. Jesus, in verse 17, aware of this, remember he's omniscient, he knows their thoughts, he knows everything about them, aware of this, said, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes you do not see, having ears you do not hear, and you do not remember. I'll stop there for just a minute. So Jesus is, again, he's gently but firmly rebuking them with everything you've seen. And everything you've heard, you still not get it? You still don't understand who I am? You still don't understand what I'm teaching? Don't you remember? Is your memory so short? 
Verse 19, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? Then I broke, and they said 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Understand what? Who I am? What I've done? What the meaning of everything I've done is? Do you not yet understand I am the incarnate God? I'm the creator. I can take a few little loaves of bread and with that feed thousands and thousands and thousands of people. No man can do that. Do you not yet understand who I am? And so, as I've said before, one of the themes of the Gospels is the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. And so Jesus is trying to prod them. Stop thinking only about your belly. Start thinking about eternal, spiritual things. I am here to rescue this sin-cursed planet. I'm here to fulfill the law. I'm here to do what the Old Testament said I would do in the prophecies. Are you guys still not putting it together? And the answer is no, they're still not putting it together. But they will. And so this is Christ prodding them prodding them to get their focus off of just the temporal and to think, too, about the eternal. And that is always the challenge. It is the challenge for you and me in 2021. We become so, so attuned with the physical and the temporal that we forget the importance of the spiritual and the eternal. Both are true. God created this physical world for us to have dominion authority over, so it's important to him. The physical world is important to him. But life is not only about the physical and the temporal. It's also about the spiritual and eternal. And that's what Jesus is trying to prod these guys. Think more deeply. Think more carefully. Think more biblically, in their case, in terms of the Old Testament about who I am and what I am doing. Do you understand? <laughs> and you can, I can just hear Jesus, I, I, maybe I'm wrong, but I can just hear Jesus in the tone of it. Do you understand? I mean, this is emphatic. He is insisting that they get their minds and focus off just the physical and temporal and also think about the spiritual and eternal. Okay? That is still our challenge today. Even if we walk with the Lord, that's still our challenge. It's both and. Both are important to God. The United States of America in 2021 in this postmodern, post-Christian world are focusing only on the temporal, only on the physical. It's all about me. It's all about my body. I'm making my body do whatever I want my body to do. It doesn't matter what God has done and how he's created me. It's all about me, and it's that physical, temporal focus. And you and I are on planet Earth as, as disciples of Jesus 
to also stress the spiritual and the eternal. That's why Christ has left us here to represent him. All right? Now, are you with me? Are you, what I really should say, are you with Jesus? Do you understand what Christ yes. is doing here? Yes. Amen. Yep. Well, right. do, uh, Jim, don't you think for new converts we need to understand as this parallel with the <laughs> disciple is, is developing and we're seeing it, that we should also be patient uh, knowing that a new convert to Christianity won't necessarily get the whole table. Uh, he'll he'll understand as he walks along it kind of as a disciple. What, what's your thoughts on those? Well, yeah, absolutely. At our church uh, two Sundays ago, uh, there's an Indian restaurant not very far from our from our church, and a guy from that restaurant who's a Hindu came to church, and the following Monday trusted Christ. Uh, I was preaching a series when he was there, but uh, it's an incredible. And uh, this guy, this guy is going to take months and months and months to dismantle his Hindu worldview to embrace the worldview that the Bible presents. So that's an extraordinary, it's an extraordinary development. It came out of the blue. It, uh, we as a staff met on this and dealing with this man, uh, one of the guys is meeting with him three times a week. But this, this whole refocusing of everything that, that is a part of being a disciple of Jesus Christ takes the rest of our lives. That's what we talk many times in this class. That's what sanctification is all about. So a new believer, to be patient and to help that person grow, that's a serious time commitment on the part of, of people in the church, uh, people in, 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 in various groups, to help someone that's just come to know Christ, because they are extremely vulnerable. They know very little. They, most of the times, they don't know much about Scripture, and they don't know really who is God, who is Jesus. They responded to their need, their sin, their, all the things that are a part of, of coming to Christ. But that patience, that's why for the disciples, the progressive understanding of who Jesus is is one of the major themes. That's true for you and me today. The progressive understanding in our lives of who Jesus is. We never stop. We never stop progressively growing in our understanding of who Jesus is, no matter how long we walk with Christ. That's, that's so important to do that. Yes. So it, just to keep in, in context that it took Paul 13 years to reorganize his thought. That's exactly right. Yep. I mean, that, that's such an important aspect of growing in our, in our knowledge and, and understanding of God, Jesus, what's going on, what's important. And that, that, that is a lifelong commitment. And for you and me, even if we walked with the Lord for a long time, you need to keep always remember that, where people are at when they come to faith. All right. What time is it here? All right. Now, if, if it's okay, I'll move to the next paragraph. And they came to Bethsaida. And you can, if you want to know exactly where that is, the map on page five is a, you can really see it's on the northeastern shore of the Sea of Galilee. By the way, this is more incidental than anything else. Peter and Andrew, their fishing business originally was in Bethsaida. Then they moved the family business to Capernaum uh, in their early uh, teenage, uh, late teenage years. There are some reasons for that. But uh, so this is an important town. 
And some people brought a blind man and begged him, Jesus, to touch him, the blind man. By the way, this miracle, it's only recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark. This isn't in Matthew, isn't in Luke, and it isn't in John. It's only here in Mark. So you have Bethsaida, a small fishing village, a little bit north of the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And th this is the only recorded miracle in Bethsaida. And it's an unusual miracle. And if you look at how Jesus responds, so when it says some people brought him a blind, we don't know who these some people are, except we must conclude they would be people in the village of Bethsaida. Possibly they were friends of Peter and Andrew because they would have known Peter and Andrew because they were from that town before they moved their business to Capernaum. Well, anyway, we can't really be definitive on who these people are. But they took this blind man. So what does Jesus do? He does something extraordinary here. He does something that's almost mind-boggling. And he led him, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. So this is not going to be a public miracle. This is not going to be a miracle performed around a throng of people a pressing crowd of people. He's taking him outside. Now remember, we, we, by the way, I've been there many times, and you can see the, it was a walled village, as all villages and towns were of the ancient world. And so he walked out past the gatehouse outside the city. And then, look at what Jesus does. And when he had spit on his eyes. Now, I don't care how you think about this, but I'd like to encourage you to try to get a mind's eye picture of Jesus spitting on this man's eyes and laid his hands on him. And he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, but they look like trees walking. It's not clear. It's fuzzy. This is the only two-staged miracle in Jesus' public ministry. His miracle is going to be in two stages. This first one, I'm, my, my wife, if she sees a man, and I don't think she's ever seen a woman, so sees a man spit in public, that is repugnant to her. That is repulsive to her. She hates to see that. But here's Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the creator of the universe, spitting on this man's eyes and then laying his hands on him. It doesn't say he laid his hands on his eyes. It says he laid his hands on him. What is Jesus doing here? I don't know if I'm right here. I, I think it makes sense. But Jesus is stimulating energizing, empowering this man's faith. The crowds brought him to Jesus. Jesus doesn't ask him, do you want to be healed? Doesn't ask him what you want. Jesus spits on his eyes and puts his hands on him and said, do you see anything? So it's a two-stage miracle. Yes, but what I see is fuzzy. It's unclear. 
I am assuming they're human beings. They look like trees. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again. He opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Two-stage miracle. Jesus has, has, has stimulated his faith. He, his faith apparently is strong enough to believe that what Jesus is doing is going to restore his sight. And indeed, in two stages, his sight is restored. Here's the creator of the universe, if I can put it this way, using divine saliva to stimulate a man's faith who sees but doesn't seem clearly. Jesus then takes his hands, the hands that created the universe, so to speak, and opens his eyes, and he sees clearly. But Jim, the Jesus ones that done. brought him had faith, right? I'm sorry? The people that brought the blind man had faith, but maybe the blind man didn't that's, have faith. That's, that's a good point. That's a good point, Woody. Obviously, the people who brought this blind man had enough faith that Jesus could heal their friend, assuming he's their friend. Does he have that faith? And the sense of the text seems to be that Jesus needs to stimulate, energize his faith. And so this two-stage, honestly, I don't know other word to use, rather bizarre miracle does that. And he says something to this man, do not enter the village, <laughs> which it's, it's a little bit frustrating because, well, assuming the man is from Bethsaida, that means he can't go home again? I don't know, but it's like Jesus so often, he tries to discourage the fantastic because he doesn't want people to follow him just because of that dog and pony show. I put it that way before. This is a man who now is responding in faith as to who Jesus is and what he can do for him. This man has now been restored. And so Jesus says, maybe this guy isn't from Bethsaida. Maybe he's from a surrounding village. Don't go back to the town. What is he supposed to do? That's it. We don't know. But the Lord is focusing on this man's faith, and this man's faithful response to Jesus. Not on the fantastic. Jesus isn't interested in swelling the crowd. He's interested in thinning the crowd. He only wants people who will follow him in faith, not people who will follow him because of the fantastic, marvelous dog and pony show of miracles that he does, which undoubtedly many people were doing. And so this is an unusual miracle. It's it certainly borders on almost the bizarre in terms of miracle. But the focus of the the focus of this is this man's faith needed to be energized and that is what happened as a result of, of what Christ did. All right. Now the next paragraph. Uh, I'd really like to get this done before we finish today. This is, a, this is one of the most important paragraphs in the Gospel of Mark, because it answers, or I should say it illustrates verse 1. 
Verse 1 of chapter 1 of Mark is the beginning. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. If you go back to verse 1, that's the thesis of the book. Here we're reaching the, one of the apex points proving that thesis. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. This is in the territory of Herod Antipas's brother, Herod Philip. This is totally Gentile territory. Jews don't live this far north. This is north of Galilee, about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. And so they're in an area that's quite pagan. Caesarea Philippi was well known for large Greco-Roman temples. Herod the Great had built a temple to Caesar Augustus there, one of the great temple complexes of the Greco-Roman god Pan, P-A-N, is, is there. I, I've been there many times. That's still there. You can see the remnants of it. It's quite, quite remarkable. So Jesus asks the disciples a series of questions. Who do the people say that I am? Jesus wants a report. Now, we've been together a long time, approaching two years or so. You've been among the people. I sent you out a couple of times. Matthew gives us an account of that in chapter 10. Now, I want to report. Who do people say I am? Well, they said some of the, some of the people are saying you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist resurrected. Well, Jesus is doing miracles. Jesus is preaching the same message. You go to Matthew chapter 4, the message of John the Baptist, so let's repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What's Jesus' message? Repent for the kingdom is at hand. Second, some are saying you're Elijah. Malachi chapter 4 says that Elijah will come before the Messiah. Well, Jesus makes clear that Elijah, that Elijah figure, John the Baptist. But some are saying you're Elijah. And some are saying you're one of the prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah. Haggai, resurrected. Now, all three of those responses are legitimate responses in terms of making connections with Old Testament prophecies. And, and, and so it's, it's telling us that the people with whom the disciples have been circulating for these two years, something extraordinary is going on. This is the resurrected John the Baptist. Or this is the resurrected Elijah, fulfilling Malachi 4. Or this is one of the prophets, the resurrected Jeremiah. Jeremiah preached the message of repentance. Isaiah was filled with all the prophets, uh, prophecies about the coming of the Messiah. Then Jesus says this in verse 29. Who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. Now remember, Christ is the Greek word for you are the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 16, verses 16 through 19, Peter's response is, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So this is, this is the apex, one of the apex points in the gospel of Mark. This is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God.
And we're now hearing from the mouth of Peter, who always is kind of the representative spokesman for the disciples. You are the Christ. Now, think about that for just a minute, then. We have been going through in the last, from chapter 6, 7, and 8, chapters filled heavily with lots of Messianic miracles, including the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000. And I told you that one of the themes of the Gospels is the progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is. Peter now exclaims, you are the Messiah. So Peter is beginning to get it. Now, if you go to Matthew 16, Jesus says to Peter, you didn't really say this on your own. It was the Father through the Spirit that inspired you to say this. I'm paraphrasing, but that's the point. So Peter is answering the question correctly. Peter is, Peter is exclaiming, declaring a truth. The evidence for this exclamation are the first eight chapters of Mark. And those chapters, the disciples witnessed it all. They saw it all. And so Peter is making a proclamation. You are the Messiah. Now, the Lord then responds. He charged them to tell no one about him. Now, why does he say that? Because men, their understanding of who the Messiah is, is incomplete. And that's why the next paragraph is so important. Because Jesus will further explain, I want you guys to understand who is the Messiah and what is going to happen to the Messiah. You haven't put it all together. Good answer, but you don't have a totally biblically centered understanding of who Messiah is and what Messiah is going to do. Let's personalize it. You still don't have a complete understanding of who I am, this is Jesus speaking, and what's going to happen to me. That's what he does in the next paragraph. So let me start. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to get started into the next paragraph because it's a long one and there's a tremendous amount of material I want to discuss, and we might save that for next week. So when Jesus says, don't tell anybody that what you've just said, because your understanding of who Messiah is is still incomplete. You still need to understand that Messiah is not going to liberate you from Rome. Messiah is headed for a cross. Messiah is going to die. I am headed for the cross. I'm going to die. But in three days, I'll be raised again. They did not get this at all. And so Jesus has to complete their understanding of the nature of Jesus as their Messiah. He has to explain that, and that's what he's going to do, and we'll start there next week. Okay, are you with me? Let me pray. Father, thank you for the Gospel of Mark that we have the privilege of studying together. Thank you for uh, these miracles that evidence who you are, the Messiah of Israel, the Son of God, Thank you for the clear declaration of the Apostle Peter that Jesus is the Christ. But they don't have a complete understanding of that. And as we've talked in a couple of different instances, and as even some of the questions, 
this progressive understanding by the disciples of who Jesus is is so evident. But it's also, also true of us. We are continually growing in our understanding of the scriptures, of who Jesus is, of, of, of what he has accomplished, what he's done, what the future will hold, what are the future prophecies associated with the return of Christ. They're all things we continue to grow and learn and understand. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for your long suffering with us. Thank you for the sanctifying process that we are all engaged in as we are being conformed to the image of Christ. Help us to be patient with one another and to nurture and encourage one another. So I commit these men to you, their lives, uh, all of the things that they do, all of their relationships, all their responsibilities. May they be good stewards of everything you've entrusted to them. And may they represent you well, as we all are called to do as your disciples. So commit these guys to you. Give us a good rest of the day in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, man. We'll see you Thanks, next Wednesday. Man.